Hey there, Behind the Knife listeners. We are coming at you today with a truly excellent mock oral boards recording done by John Abelson and William Kethman as part of their colorectal surgery virtual education series. We're really lucky to be able to collaborate with these guys and get this recording out to our listeners. As you'll soon see, these guys take you through some excellent colorectal surgery cases that you may encounter. There are several cases, so this episode is a bit longer, but you can take some natural breaks between the cases. And before we start, wanted to remind everyone again to keep up with us on social media. We are always updating you guys on our latest endeavors on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Follow us on those platforms to stay plugged in. If you've been following us, you know that the new and improved second edition of our Absite review book is now available on Amazon. You have both an ebook as well as a print option. The new edition has full color illustrations and updated material. Later this week, we'll put out a mini episode telling you all about how we put this together and how we use the proceeds. Finally, keep recommending our YouTube videos to your friends. The channel continues to explode on YouTube, and we're close to hitting 50,000 subscribers. The Journal Club series we are running has quick-hit videos about landmark papers, perfect to brush up right before your own Journal Club. And our Procedures videos has been a big hit, as I keep telling you guys. Several friends of mine at different institutions have mentioned that it's become mandatory viewing for their interns prior to doing the procedures themselves. That kind of feedback makes us really proud. Anyway, without further ado, let's learn about colorectal surgery. I want to thank Drs. Valente and Liska for agreeing to be our virtual oral board examiners for colorectal surgery boards. Jason Chen and Sarath Sujatha Bhaskar have graciously agreed to be our participants. Drs. Valente and Liska are both coming to us from Cleveland Clinic, Ohio. Jason is a colorectal surgery fellow at USC, and Sarath is a colorectal surgery fellow at the combined program of Cornell Columbia Memorial Sloan Kettering. A quick note before we get started that this session is actually a part of the colorectal surgery virtual education series that was started by William Kethman and myself during the COVID pandemic. The series takes place on Sunday evenings at 7 p.m. Eastern time, and we would love to see you join for future episodes. Take it away, Dr. Liska. Hi, welcome everyone. So uh, we're going to do two cases each is what we decided, and then we'll We'll sort of regroup and, and debrief, and then everybody can chime in. Okay, so um, we'll start with the first case. So, Sarah, right? Yes. You're at Cornell? Yes. You know, a borderline institution there? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first case um, is a 49-year-old female. She was referred to you by her gastroenterologist following a colonoscopy several weeks ago where a polyp was removed. And she brought the endoscopy report for you to review and the pathology report as well. I'll see if I can bring it up here. Um, all right, so, so here, this is the... This is the endoscopy report. So you have a greater than 50 millimeter polyp. Now, you know, gastroenterologists are gastroenterologists, so take it for what it is. So it was found in the rectosigmoid colon, and the polyp was multilobulated and pedunculated. It was removed of a hot snare. They placed a clip, and then down here is the path. So you have focus of invasive moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma, 0.5 centimeter, arising in a tubular villus adenoma with focal high-grade dysplasia. So... She wants to know what's next. Okay. So um, I'd start with a, a history and physical beyond the uh, colonoscopy. Um, was she having any symptoms that led up to the colonoscopy itself? She did have some rectal bleeding. 
Okay. And is this the first colonoscopy she's ever had for that? Yeah, first one. Um, does she have any other significant past medical or surgical history? Um, she had a hysterectomy for fibroids. She has hypertension, hyperlipidemia, and diabetes. Okay. And um, with respect to the um, rectal bleeding, has there been any other change in her bowel function or bowel habits? No. Okay. Um, so going to her uh, colonoscopy report or her pathology report here, did they comment at all on the margins surrounding the, uh, the resection? So what, what you see is that's what she brought you. Those are, you know, those are the records she has right now. Okay. She doesn't have anything else. And, and yeah. you know, she came with that to your office, and, and so that's all you have right now. Okay. Um, and so there's no mention of whether that area was tattooed either? No. Okay. Um, so I'd continue my history and physical with a thorough physical exam just to evaluate for any um, uh, things and focusing specifically on the abdominal and rectal exam. Okay, so, so on the exam, she's obese. Uh, her BMI is 38. She has a lower midline incision from a total hysterectomy with a small associated incisional hernia. Uh, you do a digital rectal examination, and it's normal. Okay, and it specifically says it's in the rectomygmoid colon. So uh, the next thing I'd probably do is um, I'd schedule her for a repeat colonoscopy just to reevaluate this area. My concern is a, um, they've only left a clip. And how long has it been since the completion of the colonoscopy? Uh, it was about a couple of weeks. A couple of weeks ago. So the clip may have come out. Um, so I, I would want to re uh, perform uh, another colonoscopy to reevaluate that area just to see if there's any residual tissue and to better delineate its location from the anal verge. Okay. So, so she also tells you that, that her gastroenterologist um, says he would be welcome to talk to you, okay? That's, that's another piece of information here. But okay, so, so you do the, the repeat, you do a full colonoscopy or, or? I would do a full repeat colonoscopy. Okay, full repeat colonoscopy, full prep again? Yeah, I'd prep her again fully. Okay, all right. Um, so you do a full colonoscopy and you see a clip at 22 centimeters with no uh, residual polyp. And are you going to do anything there? Are you going to tattoo it, or I'd probably leave a tattoo just for reference. But you're saying there's no um, there's no tissue to biopsy around that area. It, it looks like a polypectomy side with a with a clip. You know what? Let me. So so you get in touch with that gastroenterologist, and he yeah. says I completely removed it, and he sends you the pictures too from okay. the endoscopy. So so can you see the pictures here? So you see yeah, the polyp, yeah, and this is what you find when you do your repeat colonoscopy is, is just this clip here on on a on this tissue. Yeah. Um, and again, referring back to the pathology report, did the gastroenterologist have any further information on margins related to the resected lesion? No, but, but you know, he says you, you can have the slides requested and, and you know, you can get more information that way maybe. Yeah, I, I think I'd request the slides and I'd specifically want to know if the focus of the invasive cancer itself abuts any of the resection margins. Okay, so so you you get a second you you request the slides, they send it to your institution, and you you call your pathologist um, over there. And what are the questions you want to ask me? You, you said you want to ask about the margins. Yeah, so I'd want to know a couple of things. Um, a uh, yeah, um, uh, any Haggett's classification or SM invasion, just to get a depth of invasion of the the lesion itself. I'd want to know if there are any high risk features like lymphovascular invasion or perineal 
perineural invasion off the lesion itself. And I'd want to get an understanding if there's a margin from the um, tumor edge in relation to the, the polyp resection itself. Okay. All right. So in terms of Haggett's classification, so tell me a little bit more about that. What do you mean by that? Uh, just the... The depth of invasion, so uh, looking at the, um, the, the colonoscopy image itself, it appears that the polyp was a pedunculated lesion. Right. Haggis right. classification might specify um, the depth of invasion of the lesion itself into the stock. So uh, Haggis 2 to 3 being it traveling into the stock versus 4 where it goes into the base of it. So okay. I'd want to know uh, how the depth of invasion essentially of it and then uh, the other information. Right. So, so the pathologist says, yes, it was a pedunculated uh, polyp. They got a stock. They examined the stock. There was no uh, stock invasion. It was just in the head of the, of the polyp. And the margin actually, you know what, I think, there we go. You can be your own pathologist. Okay. So, <laughs> so what is that? It uh, looks like about 2.3 millimeters from the edge. Okay. Right. So, so uh, this is, you know, so again, the pathologist helps you out here. So yeah. there's no lymphovascular invasion. The margin is, like you said, it's, it's the stalk itself is 2.37 millimeters in length, and the tumor is not in the stalk. Most of the polyp is actually just tubular villus adenoma with a small focus of uh, invasion, and it's moderately differentiated. And what else do you want to know? Anything else from the pathologist? Um, no, I, yeah, no, I think that's it. And there are no other lesions on the colonoscopy, right? That was it. That was it. The, the rest yeah. of the colonoscopy, you know, there was a small polyp in the cecum that was like two millimeters, uh, two blood. Okay. So I discussed the findings with the patient at this point and let her know that, um, you know, uh, it appears it's a minute focus of adenocarcinoma with uh, moderately differentiated, no other risk features such as lymphovascular invasion, presumably resected entirely with no stock invasion based off the pathology. Um, my recommendation based on these findings would be to uh, proceed with surveillance at this point and uh, perform routine colonoscopies, probably the next one at three to six months and then a year afterwards. Okay. All right. So repeat colonoscopy in three to six months and then a year after that. Yeah. Okay. Um, anything else you want to do for anything, anybody you want to refer to or is that it? Um, based off this lesion, I, I, we should do a staging workup. I mean, it, presumably the cancer was fully resected, but a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis to uh, otherwise assess for it, although the chance of metastatic spread would be low. So I think that's a reasonable thing to do just off the finding of this focal cancer. Okay. All right. And then she tells you, you know, my gastroenterologist said something about, you know, this possibly running in my family. What do you think okay. of that? Um, so uh, I probably should have asked back when we had the pathology, was there any um, um, uh, any MMR studies or um, any immunohistochemistry done? Um, so, so they didn't do it, but you can, you can request it. So okay. what so kind of, we, yeah. Yeah. Can we request for microsatellite stability testing or instability? Okay. So, so that was negative. So um, is microsatellite stable? Microsatellite stable. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. I mean, um, does she, uh, you know, and going back to the history and physical, does she have any other family members with the history yeah, of? So, yeah, she's, she's 49 years old, right? And she has a maternal grandmother of colon cancer. And she doesn't know what age she had it. She has a maternal aunt with polyps and a hysterectomy for cancer. Otherwise, no, no, no family history. Okay. So it doesn't appear to fit any particular um, genetic family makeup just based off that history alone. Um, okay. All right. So, so, um, 
what if we say that this lesion was actually at 11 centimeters from the anal verge? So we're talking about rectum now. And there were no high-risk features. So again, you, uh, the, you know, no LVI, um, no stock invade, or, you know, no, no, no tumor burning. Um, however, the pathologist tells you, you know, I can't really assess the margins because uh, it was piecemeal. It was piecemeal. Okay. That would, um, yeah, that would change management potentially. Um, so uh, on, you know, if it's 11 centimeters, then it'd be reasonable to do an in-office flexible sigmoidoscopy. If we scoped her in clinic at the same time, was there anything residual at 11 centimeters? Um, you, you see some residual uh, polypoid tissue. You know, it's a little scarred because, because he did a piecemeal polypectomy there. Okay. Um, but you do think you see some uh, residual polypoid tissue in that area. So uh, I would go ahead and take some biopsies of the residual polypoid tissue. Um, given the piecemeal nature and the fact that the residual tissue is there, um, we'd have to undergo more of a cancer staging workup here. So um, I'd get, again get the CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, and get an MRI of the rectum with rectal protocol as well. Okay, so you get the you get the MRI rectal protocol, you get the CT chest, abdomen, pelvis, and um, all that is negative except for you know they see some uh, mild thickening in the area of the rectum, um, at 11 centimeters there, uh, where they say they can't tell if this is just post polypectomy or or anything residual. Okay, and uh, um, anything on the biopsies that we performed of that area? Uh, TVA. TVA, just Tubular residual. Tubular villus adenoma, right? Okay. But, you yeah. know, no, no margins on that, obviously. Yeah. So, I mean, these are certainly findings. Again, I would want to um, share in a multidisciplinary board, review with a pathologist, gastroenterologist. But given the fact that residual tissue is there and it was a piecemeal fragmentation and that the biopsies thus far that we've taken have only shown TVA, I'd probably want to um, discuss this, of course, at multidisciplinary tumor board, but then speak to the patient about doing a, form, a formal resection of that area. So um, at 11 centimeters, uh, it would be feasible to attempt a TAMIS for resection of that lesion and sort of uh, uh, A, ensure that, or e, uh, A, evaluate if there's any residual tumor, and B, see if, what the depth of invasion of it is. Okay, so, so take me a little bit through this. So anything you want to do before your TAMIS, you already did your staging. Anything else you want to pay attention to? What are you going to consent to when you talk to her about the TAMIS? And then yeah. take me a little bit through how you're going to do the TAMIS. Yeah. I, I guess one thing I should mention is apart from the MRI, um, um, anal rectal ultrasound would also be beneficial here just to further see if we can assess the, um, the depth of invasion of the lesion itself. Yeah, and the endorectal ultimate, you don't really see anything. You just see, okay. see some scarring. You know, again, endoscopically, the, the lesion is not really there anymore, right? It, the, you're talking sort of about a question if there's anything microscopic left. So, so the endorectal ultrasound is, is not really showing you right. much more than what you already saw. But there is some residual polypoid tissue on it. Right, right, right. Yeah, so, um, and, uh, and it's at 11 centimeters. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how, the, the lesion itself, how big would you say it is? And again, on the endoscopic picture, it was probably about three, four centimeters, but now the residual area besides the scar and the polypoid tissue, there's maybe another uh, one to two centimeters spreading, spreading additionally laterally. Laterally, okay. Um, so um, I think a TAMIS in the situation would be appropriate. Um, it would be essentially a, a transanal um, uh, uh, approach towards resecting that. I talked to the patient about getting a full thickness resection at 11 centimeters and then closing the rectum in that area. Okay. Anything else? Um, 
beyond that workup. We've done our staging. Right. I'll probably get a no, no, nothing beyond that right now. Okay. All right. So now you're taking her to the OR. Take me through what, what you're doing with her. Um, so uh, just from our flexible sigmoidoscopy, is a lesion anterior or posterior in the yeah, right? So that, right. That's important. So yep. with anterior. It's anterior. So prone positioning would be better in this circumstance just to get a better um, angle of approach on it. Um, I'd use a Tamis gel point for exposure. The patient would need to be in prone jackknife. Um, so... Uh, using a Tramis gel point, uh, we'd insert instruments. Um, we'd want to use Bovi cautery to demarcate an appropriate gross margin around the lesion itself, and then use a combination cautery and a bipolar energy device to get a full thickness resection of the lesion rectal lard down to the, um, the mesorectal plane. Um, and then after we remove it, I'd close that lay with uh, um, a running barb suture. Okay. So anteriorly, how high does the mesorectum go? Mesorectum. So at, at, at 11 centimeters, we're probably at mid to high rectum. So uh, really, actually, you really wouldn't find much um, mesorectum there. That'd be, that's probably an inaccurate thing to say. So uh, there, you know, we would just have to be really careful because we're at the edge of probably where the peritoneal reflection would be. It'd be easy to go full thickness. We'd essentially just want to resect the lesion out and make sure we don't have a full thickness perforation. Right. So, so sure enough, you, you know, this is a female, you're anterior, you're, you're getting a nice margin and you're doing a full thickness and you end up seeing, you know, a lot of small bowel in your face as you're, as you're removing that lesion, that last little bit of the lesion. And what are you using for insufflation here? Carbon dioxide. Okay. Are you using air seal? Are you using a regular insufflation? Air seal. Yeah, so, okay, so so you're lucky you're able to maintain a little bit of insufflation, but but it's kind of tricky because insufflation is escaping interperitoneally, and you have a prone jackknife, uh, and you feel like you can't really close the defect without dramatically narrowing the lumen of her rectum. What's next? Okay. Yeah, I think at that point um, you have a free perforation, and unfortunately you you're not in a safe position to uh, appropriately repair it. So at this point, I think you actually need to. Uh, turn the patient over to uh, the supine position in lithotomy and do a um, lower midline laparotomy. Um, identify the area of the perforation so you can do an appropriate primary closure. So you just close it primarily? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a perforation in that area. So I think I would just primarily find if I have clean um, uh, uh, non-devitalized edges to the uh, the rectum, I do a primary closure of the area. So so the defect, you know, again, you, you get, it was a five centimeter lesion initially. Oh, so, okay. Uh, three centimeter lesion. So, so you know, it's, it's again, it's a little tricky to close primarily there, right? Because okay. you, you, ex you got negative margins, right? So you, you dotted it out surrounding. So you're probably looking now at a, you know, from, from proximal to distal, you probably have about, you know, four centimeters from, from, you know, left to right. It's, it's probably also four or five centimeters. So it's a big defect. You still think you can close it primarily? Likely, uh, so not likely in that circumstance. Then in that case, you would need a low interior section if uh, we can't feasibly bring the edges of the, the rectum back together. Okay, just in high points, how are you going to do your low interior section? Uh, so um, as I'm doing this open in that setting, uh, I would, um, <clears throat> high points would be uh, exposing the um, um, inferior uh, mesenteric artery pedicle, um, forming a medial lateral dissection underneath that, getting the entire uh, mesorectal fascia, carrying that down into the TME plane. In this case, um, I'd want to go certainly, you know, uh, 
a, a three to four centimeters distal to the lesion so that I'm in healthy tissue. Then I'd uh, transect that with a stapler. Um, I'd bring my proximal mobile con um, descending colon conduit and do an end-to-end -end anastomosis. Okay. Uh, any stoma? Um, given the fact that it's high, it's non-radiated, the patient's bowel prep from the, um, the TAMIS procedure itself, um, no, no diverting stoma. Okay. All right. And what are you going to tell the family when you're coming out there? Um, so after, you know, I clearly explained the issue, I'd let them know that um, in an attempt to get an appropriate margin around the lesion itself, there was a free perforation that could not be safely closed from the transanal approach. So a uh, open laparotomy was necessary in order to uh, close this. And uh, primary closure was not amenable just given, given the size of the lesion. So um, a resection was necessary. Okay, great. All right, uh, so we'll, we'll move on to the uh, next case here. So uh, this is now a 52-year-old male, history of alcohol abuse and constipation, and he presents to the emergency room complaining of abdominal pain, nausea, and vomiting for three days now. The ER, before anybody even sees the patient, obtains a CT scan that shows a large bowel obstruction with thickening and narrowing in the sigmoid colon. Okay. Um, so I go down to evaluate the patient. Uh, I'd want to get a little bit more of a, a history and physical and get a set of vitals on him, uh, specifically just assess uh, any um, additional changes in bowel habits and any prior colonoscopies. Never had a prior colonoscopy. Okay. And beyond three days, has he been having any other abdominal complaints or symptoms? No, really. He was, he was I mean, he always has some constipation, um, especially when he drinks too much. Um, but but um, other than that, he was doing fine until three days ago. Okay. So uh, at this point, I'd want to start the patient, um, get some baseline, or sorry, excuse me, I'd want to move to my physical exam. So a uh, comprehensive cardiopulmonary exam and then do an abdominal exam and a rectal exam. Okay, so, so on physical exam, he's again, he's kind of overweight and he's distended. And you don't see any surgical scars on his abdomen. Uh, you do a digital rectal examination, which is normal with an empty, empty rectum and um, no real significant tenderness on your abdominal exam. Okay. Um, so uh, beyond the CT scan, we have no other imaging at this time? That's, they just did the okay. CT scan. Okay. So uh, I'd want to start the patient with some maintenance fluids, get some large bore IVs. Mm -hmm. I'd want to get some initial lab sent, including CBC lights, a CEA as well. Okay. And uh, um, I'd want to go ahead and place an NG tube and a Foley tube. Okay. What would you expect on the, on the labs to, to see on the uh, BMP especially? Uh, likely, he's going to be um, fairly contracted from the uh, uh, prolonged history of nausea, vomiting, so a hypocholemic, hyper, hypocholeremic um, metabolic alkalosis with uh, uh, contraction. Okay, so, so that's exactly what you find in the labs. Um, the CA is, is cooking, you know, that okay. takes a day or so to come back. Sure. Um, he has some mild anemia, uh, his hemoglobin is 11. Uh, mm -hmm. You want to see the CT scan? Yeah, sure. All right, so that's that's the CT scan. So, so maybe just walk us through here what you're seeing. Yeah, so on the right is um, a coronal cut. Looks like a severely dilated uh, descending to sigmoid colon. Um, on the left here um, looks to be a tapering um, along the left side there between some dilated to distal colon. So it's almost like an apple core thickening lesion on both um, in the uh, mid to distal descending colon. Uh, sorry, yeah, sigmoid. Okay, great. Yeah. Um, 
So uh, what, what's on your differential here and what, what else are you curious before going to the differential? What, what else are you looking for in this cat skin that, that maybe I'm not showing you here? Yeah, so um, I'd want to see if there's uh, evidence of any other metastatic, uh, so, so differential-wise, um, obviously uh, um, undiagnosed colonic malignancy is um, probably a primary differential. Secondary may be a diverticular stricture. Um, I definitely want to have a thorough evaluation of, of the CT for any evidence of mesenteric lymphadenopathy and any evidence of metastatic disease in the liver. Um, those two would probably be my top differential. There's so an, the, the, the radiologist says that he sees a sort of a cystic lesion in the liver, but um, he can't, it's too small to, to fully characterize. Okay. Um, otherwise, you know, no, not a metastatic disease. Um, what else in the CT scan that you want to hear about that will help you in terms of how you're going to manage this specific case? Um, so uh, is there any small bowel dilatation? Exactly. So why, why do you want to know about the small bowel dilatation? Uh, I want to know if the ileocecal valve is patent or non-patent. It'll um, definitely guide me in the urgency of my operation um, and specifically how I approach this uh, a uh, patent ileocecal valve would allow proximal dilation. Um, doesn't appear like as he has any gastric dilation on the um, the coronal CT on the left. So, so on the other images that you don't see here, the small bowel, especially distally, is, yeah. is dilated, and you know, so so it makes you think he probably does have a patent ileocecal valve. Okay. All right. So so with that differential in mind, um, you said you're going to get him an NG tube. You're going to resuscitate him. So. He's now, you know, his vitals are fine. And um, what's next? So um, abdominal exam continues to be um, non-peritoneal. Yeah. Yeah. So next, I'd want to um, assess the uh, the, uh, the the structured lesion there just to get a better idea of what we're treating. Um, so uh, I'd next want to set up the patient for a flexible sigmoidoscopy. Okay. Um, are you going to do that yourself, a, a gastroenterologist? Or? Probably have gastroenterology do it. Um, uh, so management of that area would sort of, um, I, I guess it'd be twofold. I'd have a discussion with gastroenterology. If this is a malignant lesion, ultimately he would need a, you know, resection for treatment of it. Um, and again, if it's a benign stricture, he'd also need resection of it. So I'd actually speak to gastroenterology about a doing a flexible sigmoidoscopy for biopsy of the lesion. And secondarily to see it would be amenable for endoscopic stent placement, um, which would relieve the obstruction, allow us to prep the patient for, a potential resection. Okay, so so when you're telling you're talking to the patient, um, what do you want to tell them about the stent placement? Is there any? Yeah, so um, I I tell them the indication or the reasoning for stent placement here is mainly mainly a a means of relieving the obstruction, allowing us to um, ensure a bowel prep and uh, allowing us to get to um, essentially an operation for the area. Um, which would, which would, uh, you know, potentially allow us to perform an anastomosis. The stent itself um, does have a low but significant rate of perforation, and um, uh, there is a rate of erosion too. But our plan would be to um, uh, allow the stent to be in place, allow the patient to decompress, allow the biopsy to result, so we know what type of lesion uh, it is, and that would allow us to direct what kind of surgery he needs. Okay. All right. So the patient goes to the GI endoscopy suite, and these are some endoscopic images. Um, so it goes kind of clockwise. So, so do you want to take me through what you see here? So, first image. So I think on the top left here looks like a somewhat polypoid lesion with the stricturing on the left there. Looks like on the right that looks like inflamed mucosa. 
with the lesion around it. Um, and then the bottom left here looks like a, um, a, a metal endoscopic stent has been deployed across it. And uh, image four just looks like a bunch of stool. So Great. presumably um, they've decompressed it and were able to evacuate some stool. Great. So, so time to party. <laughs> so uh, what's next? What are you doing next with this patient? So um, next, you know, um, he's decompressing. I certainly wouldn't start a, you know, I keep him in the hospital at this point. I'd, I'd uh, continue a bowel regimen to ensure that he's fully evacuating all these obstructed um, uh, uh, and then I'd want to get the uh, pathology back um, from the biopsies we took of the area. Okay, so so you know it's this was done, um, sort of in the late afternoon. It's now the next morning. You you go see him on your rounds, and um, he's less distended. Um, however, there's uh, more tenderness, significantly more tenderness than there was the other day before, especially on the right side. What do you do now? Um, be concerned that um, his abdomen may have evolved overnight. He he could have uh, either uh, 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 a proximal colonic perforation or peritonitis. So I'd get an, another set of lab work at this point, um, go ahead and resume IV fluids if they're off, and I'd want to um, uh, get a plain film of his abdomen. All right, so here's the plain film. What do you see? Um, I see the stent on the left here. I see some gas on the left descending colon. Um, on the right, sorry, image is a little buzz. Sorry. Um, on the right side of the colon, I see stool and you know pretty much going down. I don't see any. Um, actually, no. I take that back. Is that that looks like a little bit of fingerprinting along the edge of the colon there. So, any other image you'd like to get, or is this enough for you? If his vital signs are okay, um, I think it's um, okay to go ahead and get a CT abdomen pelvis with IV contrast. Anything short of that? Now, one, one thing here, there's a little hint here on this, on this image um, here in the right lower corner. Yeah, so how about an upright KB in addition to supine? Yeah, so free air. Um, so concerning definitely for the perforation, which is what we uh, suspected initially. Right. Um, so consent him for being emergently uh, taken to the operating room for exploration. Okay, and what are you going to talk to him about on the consent? So um, I'd let him know our pathology isn't back yet, but it's likely he's perforated um, um, either the area where the stent was or um, in another area of the colon due to dilation. Uh, he would need a midline laparotomy, washout, and um, the, uh, the degree of the uh, resection would, would be dependent on what the characteristics of the colon are. So if it's purely the left side and the stent, uh, potentially could be a sigmoidectomy. However, we would assess his entire colon throughout it, and if we found a perforation in the proximal or um, uh, ascending colon or cecum, he may potentially need a, um, a subtotal colectomy uh, with endiliostomy. So I'd include a pretty broad consent. So he says, Doc, I'm going to need a bag? Uh, yes, uh, in one way or the other, either an end colostomy or an end ileostomy, depending on what we find in the abdomen. Uh, I, I really don't want a bag, is what he's telling you. Like, he's yeah, just... um, the the instability. I mean, the um, the acuity of it, as well as the free perforation and the lack of bowel prep. Um, I would not do an anastomosis in this setting. So, um, well, have again, to have a bag for. Um, that would depend on the type of resection we do and what the um, outcome of the biopsies and the tissue that we get from the surgery are. 
If this turns out to be a benign etiology, it might be a sooner reversal. If it turns out to be malignancy, um, you may need to go through adjuvant chemotherapy before. So that would be variable and dependent on what we find. Okay. So anything you want to do before surgery? You got your labs, you got your type and screen, anything else? You got consent? Um, yeah, I'd give him broad-spectrum IV antibiotics if he hasn't received them already. I'd ensure he has um, adequate IV access. Um, and, uh, again, he should have the NG tube and Foley still in. So uh, with the type and screen, he should be ready for the operating room. Anything else before the operating room while he's still awake? Um, with the free perforation? No, nothing else. I'd so just need a bag. You, you, oh, no. ostomy marking, excuse right. me. So. Okay. Uh, where are you going to mark him? Um, so a four-point marking, essentially, um, uh, you know, making a, a triangle between the umbilicus ASIS and uh, his uh, um, left midclavicular line, and I'd mark him potentially for both an end colostomy in the left upper and mid-abdomen and on the right side for an end ileostomy. Okay. All right, so you take him to the OR, walk me through how you're going to position him, what are you going to do? Uh, I'd position him in lithotomy, arms tucked. Um, I'd be forming a midline laparotomy. Um, I'd want to make sure I have a colonoscope in the room in case that's needed. Um, I'd use an abdominal wall retractor after getting in, perform a thorough washout of all four quadrants of the abdomen. Um, at this point, then I'd want to fully survey the colon, starting at the uh, rectal sigmoid all the way to the cecum and see if I can delineate the exact area of the perforation. Okay, so so you, you get in there, you get a rush of air when you do your laparotomy, and the colon is, is pretty dilated, especially on the right side. You see some sort of serosal tears or, or you know stretching in the cecum, but you don't really find a free perforation. There's no contamination, and the patient is hemodynamically stable. And okay. when you do your exploration, you do see a little nodule in the liver, what they were calling a cyst. Anything you wanna do with that? It looks. Um, it doesn't look like a cyst to you. Okay, I, you, we can take a biopsy at the time with the true cut needle of the liver. You're gonna back um, out, or you're gonna you're gonna continue operating? No, I'd continue. I mean, so um, the concern is that there's probably a minute focus of perforation somewhere in this extremely descended colon, and we're not locating it. The fact that there were serosal tears in the cecum again suggests over distension. Um, right. So uh, that. That being said, it could be anywhere in the ascending or transverse colon, and we have the lesion in the sigmoid colon. So right. you feel um, the stent in the sigmoid, and it, and it feels like a cancer to you. So it does. What operation you're gonna do? Uh, a subtotal colectomy with an endoleostomy. Okay. Any other options? Um, the right colon, it, it's you know, it's it's stretched out, but it's completely healthy. Again, uh, we um, I mean, the the concern would be. If there's a minuscule perforation and somewhere in the ascending cecum, ascending colon or cecum, that we are not appreciating on this, so I, I do not think it'd be safe to leave that. I, I would still do the, the subtotal colectomy or the total colectomy. Excuse me. Okay. All right. Um, all right. He he does okay postoperatively, and he goes home, and and he comes back for his uh, post-op visit. And he says, I'm feeling great. Can you please close my stoma today? I'm here for you to close my stoma. Okay. How far out is this from surgery? This is now, he's, you know, he, he went home on post-op day four or five, and now he's like two weeks po post-discharge. And he says, yeah. you heard about some laser you might have that you can close the stoma with? I'm sorry, you broke up there some what? Uh, he heard of a laser that you can close his stoma oh, with yeah. a laser. Sure, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, do we have his pathology report back yet? Yeah, he has his pathology report. Okay. 
So uh, left colon with stent, invasive moderate, tumor invades through the muscular propria. So he's node negative, invades through the muscular propria, so it's a T3 N0, um, which would make it a stage two. Um, and then the liver nodule is metastatic, so it's stage four. So at this point, I'd actually um, discuss with him that uh, um, initiating adjuvant chemotherapy would take precedent over uh, reversal of a stoma. So I'd refer him to medical oncology for uh, systemic chemotherapy. And then after he completes that, um, then I would consider reversal. Any other imaging before before you send him to the oncologist? Or? Well, he's already had a CT chest and pelvis uh, before the uh, surgery itself, right? Right. Yeah, so... Um, so he had a CT abdomen pelvis, right? He oh, he definitely but, needs a CT chest to complete okay. his metastatic workup. All right. So so the oncologist says, he, you know, he wants to better characterize the liver and he gets an MRI. So he gets this. And you see there's the lesion that you biopsied up here um, in, you know, in the left lobe. And then there's another one posteriorly. So he goes on chemotherapy. And is that it for him, chemotherapy? And, and you're done with him? No, um, uh, I mean, with uh, systemic chemotherapy, he has two very focused lesions in his liver. He would actually be a candidate for a metastatectomy after chemotherapy, provided he has an appropriate response. So I would also consult hepatobiliary because he would probably benefit from uh, potentially wedge resections or endor treatments of the two liver lesions. Yeah. All right, so they get imaging um, after some chemotherapy and... Um, you actually are able to close his stoma at the time of the of the hepatectomy, and yeah. he's he's quite happy now. All right, okay. So this is this is these are my two cases here. So, uh, Mike, I'll let you take over. Nice job, Sarah. Are we are we debriefing at? The oh, end? are we? Yeah. How do you guys want to do it? Debrief now, or, or yeah, or do you want to move on to the next? Yeah, let's debrief. Yeah, I would I would debrief now. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so we'll debrief. So. Um, so, Ralph, how about you tell me, what do you think about the first case? So, going back, that's the malignant polyp. Yeah, so. um, let's see. Um, I think, I mean, okay, I uh, definitely need to emphasize whether it's an anterior-posterior lesion before taking someone to the OR for a TAMIS. Um, at 11 centimeters, probably should emphasize there really is no mesorectum anteriorly at 11 centimeters. Uh, so, you know, that'd be a very prone area if we're trying to do a, a transanal excision for a free perforation. And that should be a point of emphasis to avoid doing that. Um, so I think I, I, I think it's that. not so much avoiding doing it; it's more about being aware that it might happen. Right? Yeah. So, so when you do your consent for a female, especially with an anterior tumor at 11 centimeters, you want to talk to her about the possibility of a perforation and the possibility that she might need a low anterior resection. Okay. So, so, so you know, there's nothing wrong about doing what you did in terms of you know doing the low, the tamis, um, even at 11 centimeters. It's just you have to be aware of, especially in a female, right? The anterior perineal reflection is lower down. So, yeah. so, so you know, just make sure the examiners know you're thinking through that, and that you're aware of it, and that you're aware that it might happen because now you did a low anterior resection on a patient who wasn't consented, who has no idea about it, right? So, so not something where you want to be. Um, and then uh, at the beginning of the case, again, I, I sort of I gave you a little bit of a, of a sort of gray zone there, but she was 49 years old, right? But anybody with a cancer 
you know, especially below anybody, you didn't you didn't ask about a family history in your in your right, and and the family history actually was kind of consistent with Lynch syndrome. Yes, the mismatch repair was negative, so mm-hmm. she asked about that. But um, you know, she it was she was proficient for mismatch repair, um, but she's 49 and and she has an aunt with with uterine cancer and a grandmother, so so that fulfills Amsterdam okay. criteria, right? So so um, you know, something definitely always ask for family history in any patient with cancer. Okay. Okay, and and then you know somebody who's forty nine with a cancer usually we recommend genetic testing, even if the if the mismatch repair uh, proficient, but you know that's that's you know something to to keep in mind. Um, otherwise, the other thing in terms of the risk factors for malignant polyp, I think you hit them all in the Haggits. So that's important, right? If it's a if it's a pedunculated polyp, we usually go with Haggits. If it's a, if it's a flat polyp, and um, if it's a sessile polyp, we go with with Kikuchi with SM, and you sort of were, were going hitting both there at the same time, which is fine. But you know, just just make a little bit more of a sort of distinction. The examiners like hearing you think and say, well, it depends. If it's a pedunculated polyp, which this was, then then I want to know mostly about the stalk invasion. You know, if it's a sessile polyp, then I'm going to be more interested in the depth of submucosal invasion, right? Um, and then uh, the other risk factor is tumor budding. That's something that, that you know, mm-hmm. the last several years, right? And that's something you, you should ask for also in, in, in when you talk to your pathologist. And always, you know, when you get an outside pathology report and you have questions, you know, feel very comfortable to just say, I'm going to have it reviewed by, by, by another pathologist. And, and that's actually in guidelines for malignant polyps to always have it removed by another pathologist. So, so you know, that's that's something that you from the get-go, especially if somebody with an incomplete. I mean, you'd notice that the pathology report was inadequate because it didn't yeah. tell you what you wanted to know. So, just feel very free from the from the get-go to say, "I'm going to have it reviewed." Okay. Okay. I don't think you needed a full colonoscopy on her from the get-go, right? You were just yeah. interested in the, but but whatever, that's not a big deal. Um, and otherwise, I you know, I think you did really well in this case. I'll I'll, uh, I'll add a few things. Good job. Now, you know, Dr. Liska gave a lot of different type of scenarios. Right. Probably it was a very good questioning just to get you guys in the mood of what's going on. That that was probably like two questions in one, just so you know, just just so you don't feel bad about answering. Right. All. That's the whole point of this today. A couple of things. Um, good job. Don't don't let the examiner. Uh, make you second guess what you want to do. Okay, Dr. Liska was good at doing that. And right. so They'll try to do that. They'll totally try to do that. They'll make they, they again. will. Yeah. Again and again. Anything else? Anything else? Anything else? And when you think you're right, just stick to it. Yeah. Um, staging, staging, staging. It took a while for you to say you're going to stage, especially that first one with the focus invasive. A cancer is a cancer. Yep. Stage it. CEA, CAT scans, etc. Um, family history we talked about. That's important. Um, the other thing, uh, I lost it. Yeah, don't change your mind if you already think you're going to do it. You change your mind a few times just based on what Dr. Liska was telling you. So don't do that. Um, and if you say something like Haggits, which you did, you better explain it, which you did. So you could tell as soon as you said Haggit, he's like, tell me about Haggits. That's going to happen throughout the entire examination. You say something or you quote a paper, which you, you can do on this if you know it, but you better know it. So you knew it, and that was good. And what Dr. Liska said, they like to hear you say, well, if it's pedunculated, we're going to do this. If it's cystile, we're going to talk about SM1, SM2, SM3. So good job on that. Um, and as you can notice, what, what you consent the patient for, they're going to talk, what, how do you want to, what are you going to tell the patient? How are you going to consent them for this operation? You know, and if you don't say you're going to consent them for a laparotomy or a laparoscopy, you could, you could have done that perforation in laparoscopy too, just so you know. It doesn't matter how you do it. 
But the minute you don't say that you're going to do something, they're going to make that happen. Okay. So if you told them, I want to consent them for a low anterior just in case or a laparotomy, they probably won't take it on that avenue. So the more you talk that you could back up, probably the less questions you'll get on certain specific areas. So, but otherwise, good job. That's all I got. All right. Uh, um, what about the second case? Oh, you know what, John? Anybody else in the who's logged in? If the, anyone chime up for the first case, any questions, comments? Would it have been reasonable to go from to go and in, in, in an eleven centimeter anterior lesion to have just done a low anterior section out the get go, or would you have still tried Tamis first? Right. I think it kind of depends. I, you know. I think the examiner would want to hear you sort of walk through it. Uh, I don't think it would be completely wrong. That being said, you know, I, I made it so that it was a very low risk lesion um, and it was just a sort of an unknown margin. So I think the examiner was trying, you know, trying to lead you into not doing a low interior. But yeah, low interior would, you know, from a cancer standpoint would be the most effective here, but probably overkill. I think the TAMIS was the right way to go here because the only question was a margin. Now, if if this was a lesion where they say, well, there was, you know, the depth of invasion was SM3 and there was some lymphovascular invasion, you know, then I would feel, you know, definitely just, just go ahead and, and do a low interior, especially at the boards. But with something where, where you see they're trying to make it sound like it was, you know, completely removed and, and you know, just the margin was questionable, um, I, I think you can bring it up with the patient when you're consenting them, but they probably would want to hear a different option. Like if you'd say there's low interior resection, they'd probably tell you, you know, uh, the patient is, is refusing. What else can you do? Also, uh, you made a comment, uh, this is a low risk for metastatic spread. Have your numbers handy. T1, this is a, a, a T1 essentially, but T1, 10%, 12%, okay. T2, 20 to 25%, T3, 30 to 40%. You know, so, you're going to have to know those. They're going to ask you those numbers. David didn't, Dr. Liska didn't ask you that, but you brought up the fact it's a low risk. So for this, it's even less than 1%, right? This is a super low risk. So know those risk factors and the percentages of lymph node involvement at that time. That's really important for this. I, this was my exact question on my boards 10 years ago. So this is super say that, Yeah. Hmm. Nine years ago. <laughs> All right. Uh, any other comments about this first case? What was the family distribution? Because I, 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 I probably just didn't pay attention closely enough. You said an aunt, a grandmother, and the patient, right? The patient, right. So well, the yeah. aunt would have been the middle. The, okay, right. so that's how it would have been. Okay. Right. But okay. Not, not, you missed it because you didn't ask. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you got to ask. All right. All right. Um, okay, so for the second case, uh, Mike, you want to get started with your comments on that? Uh, second case, uh, I thought it was good as well. Um, you know, they're going to bring up the situation of uh, stent versus no stent. No matter what you do, something's going to happen. Okay, just understand that. You're going to put a stent in, it's going to perforate. Uh, you're going to ask for a colonoscopy. GI is going to perforate the cecum. So just be prepared for those things. Those are possibilities. Um, your operative decision-making was good. Subtotal colectomy and they perforated right colon with a sigmoid lesion is appropriate. Uh, I wouldn't do an anastomosis that time. I like that. Um, uh, I, I forgot the rest what I wanted to say, but I thought it was overall a good job on that. You walk through it pretty nicely. Um, that's all I got, David. Yeah, so, so 
this was, you know, as you guys could probably tell from the site, this was a real ca case that I had. Um, this was on Christmas Eve, obviously, you know, because that's when that usually happens. Um, and I actually did not do a subtotal colectomy, and I was trying to, to get you go to go down that route. Um, so, so you don't, you know, again, if the perforate, if the right colon is dead, or if the right colon is clearly perforated, yes, obviously do a subtotal colectomy. Um, but it's not the only option. If the right colon looks healthy, otherwise there's no full perforation. So what I actually did for the guy is, you know, I, I did an on-table lavage and I did an anastomosis and a diversion. And I, I think you did fine with your answer and your answer is a right answer. And it's good you stuck to it. You know, I, you know, once you go with an answer, it's fine. Now, if they ask you about any other options, were there any other surgical options? Uh, you know, I think you can discuss it and you can say, you know, you could potentially do X, Y, and Z, but I wouldn't do it because of that, you know? So, so, but, um, you know, in, there's many, many different ways of how to skin the cat here. And um, whenever you have a large bowel obstruction, you know, just doing a heart mince or just doing a subtotal is not the only option. Um, it depends on, on the intraoperative findings. And in this guy, again, I, you know, I really examined the, the right colon and it was, it was fine. You know, I just had some cirrhosal tears and I knew I was going to divert anyway. Right. So, so your right colon is diverted once you divert him. So, so I felt very comfortable with that. Um, so I think it's an option. Then definitely whenever you take a patient to the OR, the, the marking, you know, don't forget that. They're especially old school colorectal surgeons and young colorectal, you know, this is something you can't forget for your patients marking them pre-op, okay? Now, in a patient like this where they're markedly distended, the mark is probably not that accurate anyway, but but still for the boards, always mark your patients before you take them for surgery. Um, what else did I add? Oh, the, the upright KUB, that's, that was sort of a little, you know, curveball here I threw you, but, but um, usually at the boards, they're not going to try to trick you. I tried to trick you. I was mean here. Okay, and then like overall, the you know the the like what Mike said before, you know the, I gave you many different scenarios within these two cases. That's not what it's going to be like at the boards. It's going to be a lot more straightforward. Okay, I, I just made it a little trickier just because there's an audience. Dr. Liska, did you say you did a uh, sigmoid colectomy, primary anastomosis of diverting loop ileostomy? Correct. Correct. Yeah. That's, what I, that's what I did for this guy. And, and I mean, you could have done, you know, the other option would have been to just do a Hartman's and, you know, oversaw the cirrhosal tear that you see in the cecum. That wouldn't have been wrong either. You know, that would be another option that, that's valid. Um, but when you, when you do an anastomosis, then, uh, you know, something examiners like asking about is the on-table lavage, right? Because his right colon was full of stool. We saw that on the KUB. So usually... Mm -hmm. You know, you don't want to do an anastomosis if you have a column column of stool above it. So, so that's when the on-table lavage comes in, and it's a little bit of a lost art. I, you know, I've done two so far in my career, so so it's not very commonly done. So, what's your your technique for that? Do you use the anesthesia tubing? I did one. Right, so, that's like that's it. Right. So, so when you describe it at the, at the exam, you know, one thing to to make sure you mention is you have to mobilize both flexures, mm -hmm. uh, and then. Uh, the way I, I was taught how to do it uh, by Dr. Strong, actually, was you, you do an appendectomy. Um, I, you do a purse string around the appendix. Uh, then I put a, a foley into, into the um, appendix, tie it around it, and then you just put saline through that. 
okay, or water, saline or water you put through it. And then the question is, you know, you can do it in two different ways. One way is to would be to, to do an astomosis and then do it, but that's not ideal. Then you would have to put a rigid proctor through it and, and then evacuate there. The other thing would then be like uh, what we discussed here is the anesthesia tubing. You, you put that around the colotomy that you have in your descending colon uh, and then pass that off uh, the the um, side of the table and let the stool run, run there. Um, I've seen it done um, at Jamaica Hospital in Queens, actually, with uh, you know the ultrasound probe cover. That would be another way of how, how you sort of keep it clean. Because the on-table lavage makes a mess. No matter how you do it, it's messy. <clears throat> But, but um, the key thing to, to, to mention at the exam is that you have to mobilize the flexures and then have some sort of way of getting the stool out cleanly. All right, great. Should we move on? Yeah. Okay, we're, we're, um, we're obviously going to be running over, but so if you need, if anyone needs to take off as far as uh, the audience, then go ahead. We'll hopefully have this on behind the knife, but I think this is great. So Dr. Valente, take it away. Who's, uh, who, am I, who am I talking to? Hey, Dr. Lenz, Jason, Jason Chen from USC. Right, Chen, how you doing, buddy? Yep, hi. Right, you got a 75-year-old male. He's post-op day three from a three-vessel cabbage and aortic valve replacement. Uh, he, you got a call from the cardiology team saying he's, he hasn't passed gas in surgery and he's got a lot of abdominal pain. Past medical history, hypertension, diabetes, and obviously coronary artery disease. History of prostate cancer with radiation. Surgical history, inguinal hernia, bilateral 30 years ago. Uh, medicines, family history, social is non-contributory. Uh, you were asked to see him, take it from there. All right, so when I see him, I'd like to get a history and a sense of if he's had any prior colonoscopies and um, family history of any cancers or IBD himself or his family. Colonoscopy history uh, 10 years ago. And I already told you he has non-contributory family history. Great. And anything noted on the colonoscopy that he remembers? Uh, no records. He doesn't remember even having it done, but his wife said he had a colonoscopy 10 years ago. Okay. So um, I'd want to know if he has any active nausea, any vomiting, if it's bilious, bloody, or not, and a set sure. of vitals. Sure. Vital signs are completely uh, stable, normal tensive, heart rate's 90 uh, he's in the cardiac uh, step-down telemetry unit. He's totally normal sinus rhythm. Um, and uh, his abdominal exam, I'm sorry, his, you want to know about his emesis? Yeah, he threw up about a half a liter of bile right before he got there. Okay. I'd make sure um, he has an NG tube in place, uh, chest okay. x-ray confirmation, IV fluid resuscitation, as well as an abdominal exam. Okay. For peritonitis, digital rectal exam. Sure. So, um, you do the examination before the NG tube goes in. He's distended. He's tympanic. He has no peritoneal signs. He has no focal uh, tenderness, you know, but it's global. And uh, he just looks very uncomfortable. And he's laying in bed. NG tube was dropped in two liters uh, over, over the next two or three hours. At, at, retrospectively, it was, was taken out. So you decompress him a bit, but he's still distended. Okay. Um, great. So I'd also want to perform a digital rectal exam, make sure there's no masses, uh, no, no, no masses in our abdomen and the rectum and no hernias, no recurrent sure. hernia. So no hernias, no inguinal hernia, no ventral hernia, rectal examination is completely normal, no blood, no mass, no, uh, no stool. Okay. Now I want to take a look at his labs, um, see if his white count's elevated, what his creatinine is. 
um, any electrolyte abnormalities that need to be corrected and um, take a look at his medication list, see how many opioids he's on to try to reduce. Okay. Um, so ba based on based on your comments, you want a complete metabolic panel. What kind of what do you want? So I'd get a CBC and um, BMP um, okay. liver panel. See what his albumin is. Okay, uh, CBC his white count's eleven point five. Hemoglobin is uh, eleven point eight. Uh, his his potassium's two point five. Sodium is 127. Creatinine is 1.3. That's, that's kind of where he sits, 1.1, 1.2. Um, magnesium is also low at 1.5. Okay. So it's hyponatremic, hypo, uh, hypomag, and um, hypokalemic. And he's uh, on a little bit of oxycodone, uh, five roxacet, five milligrams for his uh, sternotomy. Okay. So I'd like to also get a abdominal x-ray, supine, and have his uh, electrolytes repleted, both his potassium and his mag, and have them uh, resuscitated with saline, given his hyponatremia. Okay, so fluids are running, electrolytes are being replaced, and you said you want a one-view abdominal film? I get a two-view flat and upright. Okay. Uh, I'm not as fancy as Dr. Liska. I don't have films prepared for you, but there is no free air. Uh, he has a large colon, uh, paucity of gas in the small bowel. His colon uh, estimated diameter of the cecum is around 10 centimeters. Uh, you look at the film yourself and, and you, you concur with the uh, radiology fellows reading because it's like four o'clock in the morning. Okay. Um, they said the cecum is 10 centimeters, transverse colon, that's, was it about, was that also? Uh, about four centimeters. Okay. So I'd uh, advise the cardiac team to keep him resuscitated, make sure his urine output is above 0.5 cc's per kick per hour. And mm -hmm. uh, I'd want to, I'd actually just want to get a CT POIV um, okay. after he's been decompressed and see if there's any transition points. Yeah. Okay, good. So the, uh, the NG tube is doing a good job. You put the contrast on the NG tube. Um, you get a CT, you say oral and oral and IV? Yeah, make sure he's resuscitated um, well mm -hmm. with IV fluids, got a bolus and, and running maintenance. Very good. The CAT scan shows uh, very similar to your plain films, about a 10, 11 centimeters uh, cecum. Uh, there's no volvulus. Uh, there's, no, there's no mass that they could tell in the colon. Um, small bowel is non-distended. There's no volvulus of small bowel. There's no, um, there's no hernia that they see. There's no intra-abdominal uh, abscess or pathology that is found, just a very dilated colon, uh, which does not taper down all the way down to the uh, anorectal region. So a fully dilated colon and rectum. Okay, so it sounds like a pan-colonic, um, like an Ogilvy's picture of colonic ileus. So I would- What's what, what is what's Ogilvy's? Uh, so functional obstruction in which the colon is not progressing in its normal colonic motility, um, related to medications, major surgery. So okay. um, I try to get him off his opioids as much as possible, have him on uh, Tylenol, gabapentin. Okay. okay, very good. So uh, CAT scan was done, NG tube. We got him off his Roxas set. We corrected his electrolytes. Uh, he, that was day three. Now it's day four after the cabbage, and he still has not passed any flatus. NG tube is putting out maybe only 50 cc's now over the last 12 hours. 
he's still very distended, tympanic, and uncomfortable. And now you took away his pain medicine. Okay. Um, I'd make sure that uh, I'd get a repeat abdominal x-ray, see if he's getting worse um, on his exam. Is he more distended than before? Uh, it's about the same. Uh, plain film shows the cecum's now 11.1 centimeters in dimension instead of 11 centimeters. Okay. And um, no, so it's getting more distended. All right, so he's not progressing. I want to make sure his electrolytes are completely improved. Normal. Okay. And he has no peritoneal signs, correct? Not at all. Just distended, tympanic, and uncomfortable. Okay. Um, I think it's reasonable. He's an ICU to trial neostigmine within the unit with telemetry to make sure um, he doesn't get too bradycardic. Okay. Uh, describe... Number one, what, what is neostigmine and how do you use it? So it's a acetylcholine esterase inhibitor that promotes okay. the parasympathetic uh, stimulation of the colon. In okay. the of Ogilvy's, it's a reasonable option before any surgery. Um, I am concerned that uh, his cecum was getting worse. I think it's a worthy trial, but I've had a conversation with him that we may need to proceed um, if there's any concern for ischemia or perforation that we'd have to proceed with surgery, okay. a colectomy. Okay, let's stick with the neostigmine. So you, you made something that you want to do in the ICU. You, that was Why is that? Yeah, um, one of the side effects of the um, parasympathetic stimulation is bradycardia. Okay. And um, he's had cardiac surgery. Um, mm -hmm. He's at risk for further arrhythmia. Okay. What is, uh, describe what you, how you want to proceed with the neostigmine. You're at the bedside. He's in the ICU. He's on a monitor. Go ahead and give the medicine, Dr. Chen. What are you going to give him? So I'd have to review um, the protocol on my institution, but I believe it's 10 milligrams of, I think it's 10 milligrams of um, the neostigmine and have him monitored for worsening bowel distension and bradycardia. Okay. 10 milligrams. So uh, it doesn't work. He does not get bradycardic. Uh, though with 10 milligrams, he probably will get bradycardic. So uh, he does not get bradycardic. Okay. He's distended. What do you want to do now? Um, I like to actually place a red rubber up his rectum to try to see if I can decompress him with a red rubber temporizing measure. Like a, red like a red rubber Foley catheter? Uh, red rubber, Rob, like a red Robinson, like an 18 French red Robinson. Okay. Okay. He's like a healthy compress. So, okay. We, we, we've, uh, we've tried neostigmine. Uh, it has failed. What else can you do uh, besides neostigmine and surgery in a patient with pseudo obstruction of the colon? Um, you know, I remember being asked this and I don't remember off the top of my head, the other medications. Gastroenterologists perform them every day. Colonoscopy. Colonoscopy, good. So you want to perform a decompressive colonoscopy. Colonoscopy. Yes. Very good. Yes. What is your goal? What is your goal of decompressive colonoscopy? How do you do it? And what is your goal? Uh, my goal is to identify any pathology that may be causing this obstruction. Excellent. Um, if there's any concern for volvulus to detorse it. Okay. So no volvulus, there's no obstruction. You ruled out distal obstruction already um, yeah. with a CAT scan and your digital rectal examination. 
So do you scope all the way to the ileocecal valve to get the appendiceal orifice to take a picture for screening purposes, or do you just get into the right colon and suck out all the air you can? Um, I'm looking to decompress as much gas as I can. I'm not trying to go into the ileum. Good. Case. Okay, so you get you reach the right colon. You're at the paddock flex. You get into the right colon. You, you pull back slowly. Uh, you decompress air. Is there anything you could leave behind at the time of the colonoscopy, which may or may not benefit the patient uh, to hopefully not have a recurrence of this? Yeah, I'd say leaving a red rubber catheter up more proximally yeah. to try to keep it scented open and be a, you know, cut some holes into the end so that it can decompress better. Okay. Now you do a good job of decompressing this colon. It's day four. He feels great. Uh, day five now, post-surgical, he's right back distended again. Anything you want to do now? Uh, make sure labs exam have not changed. They have not changed. He's exactly the same, but he got re-distended. Yeah, so it's, it seems like um, my promotility agents have failed, and um, I'm very hesitant to operate at this time. You know, in this situation, I, I would call my senior colleagues to see if they advise anything beyond before surgery. Sure. They advise you to repeat the colonoscopy. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't know what that would be doing. Okay. Uh, he's now day six on the floor, and you get a call from the intern saying he's got peritonitis. Okay. What do so you want I, to do? Immediately go see the patient, IV fluids and antibiotics, um, and talk to him about taking the OR for exploratory laparotomy. You are in the operating room. You have a full laparotomy, and the cecum is, uh, has a hole in it. And there's feculent peritonitis with stool uh, throughout the entire abdominal cavity. So I'd wash them out and perform a total colectomy with an end ileostomy and okay. uh, leave a rectal stump and make sure I leave a red rubber to decompress it from the anus. Anything else, anything short of a total colectomy for a right-sided colon perforation? Um, I'd say for right-sided colon perforation, Another option would be to perform a segmental colectomy with an ileocolonic anastomosis. Um, but in the setting of peritonitis, if everything's inflamed, all the tissue looks inflamed, I'm hesitant to perform that. Okay, good. Okay, all right. Next question, 31-year-old female. Okay. She had a, she's three weeks postpartum for her first child. Yeah. She had a, a vaginal birth, uh, prolonged labor, she had to have an episiotomy at the time. She comes to see you. She's three weeks postpartum. She's breastfeeding. She's miserable because she goes, Doc, I have stool and air coming out of my vagina. Please fix this now. What do you want to do? I'd want to get my history and physical in the clinic, see um, if she's having fevers, chills, if she's septic, um, yeah. get her vitals. Get a Vitals are stable. She's no signs of systemic sepsis whatsoever. Uh, past medical history, uh, she has none. She's 31 years old, quite healthy. Uh, this is her first child. No pertinent family history. No uh, pertinent medical history in terms of medicines and socially nothing. To, she has a couple of drinks a week. So essentially no important history of her uh, family, herself, medicines, or surgeries. Three weeks postpartum, 
with Aaron's stool via the vagina after a prolonged, difficult labor. Okay. I would want to characterize uh, how bad his, her symptoms are. Is it, did she say, did you say every day and it's making her miserable? It's, it's so, um, doc, I'm 31. I just had my first baby and there's poop in my vagina. It happens every day. Every time I go to the bathroom, it's liquidy and you got to fix it. Okay. Um, so I would examine her now and take a look at the defect. Um, okay. I want to see how big it is from both the, the rectal side and the vaginal side. So from a bimanual exam and I get my flex sig in my office to also take a look to see how high it is, how far it is from the sphincter complex, evaluate her sphincters intact. Um, yeah. Good. Good. Uh, briefly, I'll go over the findings in a minute, but where would you expect a obstetrical traumatic fistula to occur with the gynecological system in the female? High anterior. or low? Low, low anterior. Good. Okay. So indeed, you, you do a, an examination of the patient uh, in the lateral position. She just had a baby. Um, so you're looking, uh, it looks like there may potentially be possibly a sphincter defect anteriorly. You can't tell. It's, it's, things are very macerated, raw, excoriation. You do see a fistula that occurs, really, it's more anal, vaginal, okay? So it's, it's, uh, it's quite low, okay? Mm -hmm. Where you expect it to be for an obstetrical trauma, as you described, it, it's, it's about uh, uh, two centimeters in size, consistent with the previous laceration, uh, but the tissue is macerated, inflamed, you can't really tell if there's a septic focus or an abscess there or not. Um, and that's in about as much of the examination you could do because she's quite tender. But you okay. can tell that there's an anal perineal, uh, anal perineal vaginal fistula. So you have a perineal to vaginal fistula, okay? Okay. From this setting, given the severity of her symptoms, uh, her effective quality of life and the inflammation in that area, I would have a discussion with her about a diverting ileostomy to, uh, I would fecally divert her because I would say right now the tissue planes are very, they're still inflamed. I can't really get a sense of the tissue quality and uh, I'd want everything to cool off first before and get a better exam in two months after a diverting ileostomy. Is there a better way to get a better examination short of diverting the patient while in the operating room? Well, I would do an EUA okay. for I would do EUA before and diverting last me to make sure she's comfortable. But I still feel like we are, I would still have that discussion early on, given that she sounds like she's miserable every day. And I would, I would unlikely do a repair in the setting of inflamed tissues. Good. So you take her to the operating room for an EUA and uh, you see a fistula there. Um, it's not as bad as you thought it was. It was just excoriated from loose stool. You do see the fistula tract, and uh, there's no sepsis per se in the rectal vaginal septum that you could drain, but you place the seton nonetheless uh, just because you're there. You, you, you had a second thought about uh, giving the diverting loop bileostomy a 31-year-old female three weeks postpartum, so you didn't give her loop bileostomy, uh, but you just control the area down there, and you put her in some on Imodium to slow down her loose stool. She's feeling better now. So now we're, we're five weeks postpartum. What do you want to do? Yeah, I, you know, I, I take back to ask me. I think um, stool. I already, I, already, I already took it back for you, sir. 
I would have added some uh, fiber in addition to the low paramide. Uh, Well, you know, you control her consistency of her stool. She feels much better. But you know what, Doc? I got a hole in my vagina. I got a baby I'm breastfeeding. Uh, You know, how am I going to fix this? So um, I'd I'd see her after the seon's been placed in. I'd reevaluate her six weeks from then. Okay. And see if the if the opening is any smaller, and also discuss in the same clinic appointment. Discuss a endorectal advancement flap. Okay, um, so you see her in the in the office. Things are much better down there. Less less excoriation, no fluctuants. It looks pretty good. Um, Cetan's really not doing anything. There's a, there's still a hole there. Um, what else do you want to do workup wise before you take her back to the operating room? And how long do you want to wait? So I'd want to get a sense of her sphincter um, quality. If there's a palpable defect in the sphincter itself, um, her ability, her resting pressure, her squeeze, if she's continent, she's been able to, I know she's leaking out of her vagina, but if she's able to con- control her bowel movements from her rectum. Yeah, so we're now what? Uh, we're about six, we're about eight weeks from, from vaginal birth. She does... Uh, endorse some incontinence to gas and some liquid stool, even though you thicken it up and a little bit of soft stool as well. She does have some incontinence. Um, and you said you wanted to evaluate her sphincter. How do you want to do that? We get a monometry to take a look at the, how many degrees of a defect over 120, less than 120. Can you describe beta monometry for me? Yeah. So, um, this would be done under moderate sedation in which um, I have the patient in left lateral to keep it this position. And I have my endorectal ultrasound probe and I'm going to insert it and evaluate the sphincter complex. I'm looking to see if there's a gap in the sure. external. So are we doing an ultrasound or manometry, sir? I'm talking about the endorectal ultrasound at this time. Endorectal ultrasound. Okay, very good. So you do an endorectal ultrasound. There is a defect anteriorly and external sphincter muscle. Uh, you know, at least uh, at least ninety degrees. So you have your muscle is open like that. Okay. Yeah. So this is um, not a case that I've done many of, but I would talk to my senior colleagues um, during our conference our weekly conference to discuss a endorectal advancement flap and overlapping overlapping sphincterplasty to repair the sphincter defect okay what is your timing so she's eight weeks now she's eight weeks past uh past birth and things are things are looking a little bit better but she still has the fissure so when do you want to take her i'd see i'd say from the time point of the seton uh, helping to control um, the drainage, I'd say eight weeks from seton placement. Okay. So, and then you talked about, you brought up the endorectal ultrasound. What percentage of patients would you expect after obstetrical trauma and the fistula to have some sort of sphincter defect? I'd say majority. So probably 80, like above around 80%. And Good. At this point, I probably, if her incontinence is not severe, I'd probably hold off on any kind of sphincterplasty and discuss the endorectal advancement flap. Okay. So we're in the operating room. We're at eight weeks. Talk about your repair. Yeah, so I'd have her in lithotomy position um, under general, and I'd want to 
take a look. I make a perianal block and identify the borders of my defect. Um, examine both vaginally and um, and rectally uh, with my scope, anoscope, and I'd create a flap um, proximal to the defect and make the base twice the length um, so that it's well perfused and tension free. And um, I'd want to be able to advance it and sew it so that it closes the fish lid defect um, and close it with interrupted sutures. She does well. Uh, you're about three weeks after surgery and she's incontinent. Okay. Doctor, you fixed my fistula, but I have no control over my stool. What do you want to do? So I would, again, attempt medical management, stool bulking agents, and anti-motility agents, loperamide and fiber. Okay. Three months go by. I'm still incontinent. Okay. So in terms of fecal incontinence, um, I'd want to think about whether or not I injured her sphincter complex during the repair. Um, so at this point, I'd repeat the indirect ultrasound to see, evaluate the sphincter defect. There's a 100 degree defect now instead of 90. Okay. Uh, she's symptomatic. I would offer her a overlapping sphincteroplasty to treat her fecal incontinence. Looking back at your original operation, would you like to change anything in your decision-making process of the advancement flap? Yes. I think it's a good time to stop, actually. Good job. I threw a lot of stuff at you there. Why don't we start with uh, this one? You were on the right track. 85% or more will have a sphincter defect after obstetrical trauma. It's the most common cause of rectal vaginal or anal vaginal fistula, right? Right. So, so you got to fix the sphincter complex at the time of the operation. Uh, it's, you said it. You said an overlapping sphincteroplasty. Yeah. That's so, what you need to do to fix the fistula because there's a hole very low. You have to go transperineal. You make, you know, kind of a U-shape, you know, U-shape. And you do an overlapping sphincteroplasty, which – thus closes the anal vaginal defect. Some people have advocated doing a sphincteroplasty plus an advancement flap. That's reasonable as well, but that's kind of belt and suspenders. You don't have to do that. But um, so let me back up from the beginning. So first and foremost, obstetrical trauma is the most common cause of these, okay? A good percentage of these are going to close on their own, all right? So I would not offer any operation before at least three months, nothing for three months, maybe six months, because okay. a vast majority will shrink up, they'll get smaller, and some go away. Many do. Um, yeah. I gave you like a two-centimeter one, sizable, but I didn't give you like a cloaca, or like a full-blown defect. That's never going to heal, right? That's a whole different story. This is an anal vaginal fistula. So give it a shot to heal on its own. Now, you didn't get a good examination in the office. You know, anoscopy wasn't tolerable, this and that. So take them to the OR. Take a look. I wouldn't rush to an ostomy. I think that's a mistake. Okay. All right. She she doesn't she doesn't have a horrible septic focus down there. She just has a little bit of induration. You know, she's got stool in her vagina. It's going to be red. It's going to be painful. She just had a baby. Yeah. Rolling. Yeah. The last thing you want to do is not go back in there and give them a bag. You don't need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I would I would very, very 
I like the way you're thinking. Now, maybe if this was her second or third repair and they all failed, now's the time to think about maybe diverting your second or third repair because the first two didn't work. You know what I mean? So yeah. think about that. And it's not like it's a complex flap or some crazy gracilis or martius or radiation used yeah. fish. So don't, don't go crazy with that. Wait, 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 and wait on these. Okay. They're all going to want it fixed yesterday. They're all young females who just had a baby who are stressed out, who are pissed off at the world now because they got stool in their vagina. Just reassurance. If there's sepsis, drain it. You could put a seat on in, but it's not necessary all the time if there's no sepsis. So, you know, wait these things out. So I'd wait. Um, you definitely want to get an ultrasound on all these patients. Manometry plus minus, that's okay. You were talking about manometry, but you were describing ultrasound. So make sure you know your anal rectal physiology testing and ultrasound testing, two different things. You were right. You did a good job because you, you got it right. 80, 85% were going to sphincter defect. You got to check them out. Okay. Right. Why? Because when you do repair them, if it's still there at three to six months and if it doesn't go away and they have a sphincter defect, you should probably do something with the sphincters, right? Overlapping sphincteroplasty. Uh, I wouldn't, details of style, you know, asking senior partners is good, but you know, if you keep saying it over and over again, you know, your senior partners aren't here right now. So it's okay to say it. Yeah. And like, like, like Surratt said, I'm going to do it at MDT conference. I'm going to be, that's fine. But you know, don't let them know you haven't done them. It's okay. You could talk through it. You know, maybe I've done five in my career. That's fine. So what if there was no sphincter defect and just the fistula there, what could you do? In that case, I think uh, advancement flap. That's a perfect choice. Okay. So no sphincter defect, you know, advancement flap was a good choice. You could learn, study up on how to do the advancement flap, what kind of suture you use. Those are very nitty gritty details I didn't get into because there was other things to talk about. Yeah. Um, Just a quick question. Um, yeah. Do you, are you a, you know, in someone who's 31, this is their first fistula, no radiation. Yeah. Um, you do the overlapping sphincteroplasty. What are your thoughts on, you know, do you throw every gun at them the first time or do you wait for them to recur potentially? Or I guess, you know, the thought of doing a Martius or a Gracilis interlay to really fix yeah. it and be done with it. Or in, and maybe that's the way you would approach someone who's had a history of radiation and a little bit more complex. But so on a 31 year old, do you like to start slow and work your way up or do you go big you know, to fix it in one fell swoop. And yeah, it's a, good, it's, a, it's a good question. Uh, so, so the Martius, you know, bulbal cavernosis flap of the labia majora. Once again, you're going to be taking a 31 year old's uh, labia and opening it up and, or gracilis, you know, those are usually reserved for failed after a first, second try of, of a normal one. But those are really, really beneficial in people with radiation history. Okay. You got to bring in a, 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 a well vascularized, outside the radiation field graft in. Uh, Crohn's also something you should consider as well in those cases. I, I would not go to those more advanced flap procedures for the initial repair. Um, it's a shame that we don't do overlapping sphincteroplasties like we used to. I mean, SNS has been great and it changed the game for incontinence, but from a trainee standpoint, you guys have limited experience with overlapping sphincteroplasty, which this is meant for this. That operation is meant for this condition. Um, you could combine it with an advancement flap as well, like I was trained to, but that's like a belt and suspenders. You know, you don't have to do that because the muscles themselves close the hole. Um, but so back to what you said, William, I would go 
you know, basics, work your way up because you're going to reserve those for something that fails. Okay. Um, or if you're at a place like Dave or I are at, you're going to get referred people who failed once or twice before, then it's a very good option. Um, David Liska, anything you want to add to that one? Yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. I, I would definitely not start with the Gracilis on a, on a first time. Um, I would save that for when it fails again. And, and during the exam, they might make it fail, and, and then you have that as an option. So, yeah. so I would definitely uh, I agree with what Dr. Valente said in terms of saying, you know, call my senior partners. Um, I think saying I'll discuss it at MDT is fine. Um, but, you know, the point of the exam is to make sure you don't need your senior partners, right? right. So, so, so you can you can sort of say, um, I haven't done it myself, but this is how I, what I read about it, or something like that. But, but yeah. you know, in terms of sort of, you know, call a friend, probably not a good idea at the exam. Um, yeah. And then try to pick up on the hints of the examiners when they're asking you questions. I, I heard Mike kept asking about the timing of the surgery, and it was bothering him. And, and try to try to pick up on that. And and when he kept asking the timing, the timing. You know, it's sort of, you, you got to think, oh, he doesn't like that we're doing something now. So say, oh, I would wait. And, and like, maybe it's because I know Dr. Valente and I, I have heard this question before and I know he was getting at it, but, but he threw it in there a few times. He asked it and you sort of, you know, avoided the question rather than jumping at it in terms of the timing of when you're going to do the surgery. So, so listen to the examiners when they ask something, because we usually, when they say something, it's because they want you to say something specifically to that point they're making. All right. Yeah. Um, any other comments on the fistula one before I go to the Ogilvy's? Okay. Ogilvy's, a couple things I want to really go over. Uh, you got the diagnosis right away. That's good. Okay. Things for Ogilvy's that are very, very, very important. Number one is before you do anything, you got to rule out distal obstruction, which I told you there was not one based on CAT scan. So you got a CAT scan, POIV contrast. Some people do rectal contrast just to make sure you don't have to do that. CAT scan's pretty good at ruling out distal obstruction. Um, so you never want to give neostigmine before you rule out distal obstruction. You'll, you'll perforate them and the patient will die and, and you'll fail that question, okay? But you didn't do that. You didn't do that. Neostigmine can be first-line treatment. Uh, there's some controversy if you, if you should do decompressive colonoscopy first or neostigmine. It depends on where you're at, who trained you, what your resources are, who's doing it, you or GI, et cetera. So... Um, decompressive colonoscopy and neostigmine are, are about the same, okay? It just depends on where you're at. So neostigmine has to be done in a monitored setting, okay? It causes bradycardia, acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. 2 to 2.5 milligrams IV push over 2 to 5 minutes is the standard dose. 2 milligrams or 2.5 milligrams. You could also do uh, neostigmine drip over 24 hours. A lot of different places do different things. You need to have atropine at the bedside for bradycardia or glycopyrrolate, one of those medicines... You know, he's a cardiac patient, but, you know, cardiologist said it's okay to do it, so no big deal. Um, decompressive colonoscopy. Don't forget about decompressive colonoscopy. Uh, some people do that right away. That's like their first-line treatment. Number one, uh, you're going to rule out vivalis, which you should have done already with the CAT scan. Number two, you're going to rule out distal obstruction for real because you're going to put a scope in them. But you got to do it very cautiously. You can't over-distend. Use CO2. Get to the right colon only. You don't got to intubate the cecum or the terminal ileum, that's against the purpose of it. You're trying to suck air out of the right colon and throughout. Very often, they'll leave a long decompression tube 
you talk about a red rubber. I mean, that's going to help a little bit for like a volvulus, like a big mushroom or a red rubber up the rectum, but they'll leave this long decompressing tube throughout the entire colon. Does it work? Plus minus, you know, you could talk about it. That's, you didn't miss any points on that. Um, if the colonoscopy worked and it recurs, do it again. Okay, try it again. You, you don't want to take them to the OR too quickly um, because OR is not good for these patients. High mortality, high morbidity. Right. Obviously, you're going to get a stoma, right, for the most part. So I, I pushed you into, you did nothing, you're waiting, so you perforated, right? He showed signs of peritonitis, showed signs of tachycardia, um, et cetera. Um, so if, what they're going to lead you down the pathway is you're going to do a, you're going to do a decompressive colonoscopy. Uh, they're going to, they're going to recur. You do it again. You did neostigmine. It doesn't work. Now you're stuck with this 70 year old guy, three, four, five, six, seven days. You know, you got to operate, uh, somehow. So different operations exist. Uh, loop biliostomy, blowhole colostomy, loop transverse colostomy, whatever it is, secostomy, have an armamentarium of operations that are available that you could talk about. All of them are not good. Surgery is not good for these patients, but sometimes they're going to force you into doing a surgery on them. And that happens in real life too. So, uh, you know, otherwise, you know, did okay. You, you worked it up pretty good, but then you forgot about the colonoscopy and then uh, you could repeat it, you know, and I made them perforate. So, yeah. Otherwise, it's good. Thank you. Yeah. So, just a question on the on the Ogilvy's case, the the perforation. Um, I guess two questions. I'll start with the perforation. So, perforation. Um, I mean, I guess theoretically, there's no contraindication to managing them with an endoleostomy, doing a right hemicolectomy, and leaving a long Hartman's. Correct. Fighting another day. You. I, so, so if they had a perforated right colon. Uh, just take the right colon out, give an endoleostomy and get out of there. So then, but then Don't as do a far as, yeah. yeah, exactly. And then if you decompress twice, you have recurrence of distension, he's not perforated. Um, you talked about those options. It, at least in my mind, it seems that a diverting loop ileostomy would be most ideal other than the fact that, you know, in a guy that's got cardiac history, the renal insufficiency stuff with the high output ileostomy might be an issue, but at, are the, are the other colonic, Ostomies really helpful in this process. I mean, you could you could do a secostomy, which is old school, which is still described. It's still in our practice guidelines as something to do. But at the patients I've taken, I've given them a lupuleostomy and like a blowhole transverse colostomy. Uh, it works out pretty good, and then you could reverse them down the road someday, a little bit easier. Secostomies uh, okay. are, are nasty uh, to control. So I prefer a loop ileostomy and a blowhole transverse loop colostomy. You know, you're gonna get, you're gonna see the situation next year when you're on your practice. You are. It's, it's gonna, gonna be happen. my first week on call. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, good job. That was good. Yeah, good job. I think yeah, the the right colectomy is definitely you know when it's perforated, definitely a right colectomy. I wouldn't move on to a total colectomy. That's that's you know unnecessary resection, and. Um, the, just the loop ileostomy itself, they you know they could say it's not going to help. You know his colon is still going to be dilated. If he has a competent ileocecal valve, right, then just doing an ileostomy without a blowhole might not help. Yeah. Um, uh, when in your workup, I think you did a great job in the workup uh, of this guy. Um, you asked about opioids, which is great. The other thing to look for is anticholinergics. 
And a lot of our patients nowadays are on Benadryl, you know, on scopolamine patches, you know, all those things. So, so you know, look at those two. You said you're going to look at the medication list, but say specifically what you're going to look for besides the opioids. Um, then uh, I, I think it was very good. You, you kept going back in terms of you're going to examine the patient again, and that's important. You have to find a little bit of a, of a sort of balance between you know, going back and examining the patient and redoing everything and sort of stalling. You don't want to stall during the exam. You, you'll notice during a lot of these uh, questions in the rooms, you probably, you know, you had it during your general surgery boards. And if they just want you to get further to the point, you know, pick up on it and don't keep asking about, you know, the, you know, past medical history, you know, what's the hemoglobin A1C, you know, like don't stall, just, just keep moving. But yes, in a patient like that, it's super important every day. What's the exam? What are the vitals like? Thank you again, Dr. Valente and Dr. Liska, uh, for administering the boards this evening. And thank you, Jason and Sarath, for participating. Don't forget to join us on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for our colorectal surgery virtual educational series. You can get more information at jc.kethman.org. Thank you.